And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, June 16th, 2020, and I have my friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital, with me. Hi, Pam. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking at sunshine again outside, and it's been, you know, nice weather, so that always makes me happy. Yeah, we've had a couple of uh, couple of weeks in a row of sunshine, and I, I think sunshine is healing, isn't it? I think it is. We all need that little vitamin D coming in. And speaking of healing, how uh, how are your COVID patients doing at the hospital? Can you give us some updates? I can. Um, so last week we said we had 33 inpatients that were positive with COVID, and today I'm very happy to say we have 15 inpatients that are positive with COVID, which is more than half, as well as last week we had five waiting results, and this week it's six waiting results. Um, we have had an increase in deaths there from 53 last week to 59 total deaths, um, and DuPage County went from 8,111 last week positive patients to 8,465, so I think that's a slowing of the growth of the county. And the state went from 127,757 to 133,16 positive patients, with deaths going from 5,904 to 6,326. And for the good news, we um, have gone from 365 discharged COVID patients to 382 patients discharged from Elmhurst Hospital. So of the, of the folks who do eventually tend to succumb to this disease, are most of them, have most of them been in the hospital for quite a while? Um, not so much now. It's more ones that are elderly who um, probably were, had other conditions going on and were not going to do a lot of heroic efforts to save their lives. So it's more those kind of patients these days. Um, in the beginning, it was a lot of people who stayed a long time in the hospital, but that's not so much anymore. And how's the staff doing in terms of uh, staying safe? Well, we're observing fewer people um, testing, fewer fewer employees testing positive. Um, right now, we, this past week, we had three positive employees on test, and that brings us to about 50 employees. Okay. And how about testing capacity? Anything new in the last week? I know I ask you that every week, and uh, I know you, you can't change the world in a week, but is that increasing slowly? <laughs> um, so right now we still have 1,800 tests per day in the molecular testing, and our antibody testing has started, and that's 1,200 tests per day. Uh, so one, one of the things is people are asking me, how many can you do at the hospital? Because we do a lot of these at our testing facility off-site. And really, at the hospital, we can do 650 patients per day. The reason for that is a lot of those are done on our rapid testing, and we have a limited ability for rapid testing. We only have 274 tests per day in our rapid testing. Part of that is because you have to have um, uh, the machine has to be within 15 minutes of where you get the t you know, where you draw the test, and so. Um, you know, there's only so many that can go through. So 
that's why we have encouraged people to go out to our Warrenville site for the drive-through testing. It's very quick. It's very orderly. And we do that for all of our uh, pre-surgicals. They go through the drive-through testing rather than um, having it done here at the hospital. And in the antibody testing, um, that's just newly starting. So those, that 1,200 per day is a good number. Great. You know, I have a lot of questions around the whole subject of folks that have have been exposed to somebody who's tested positive for COVID and what they should do, uh, you know, especially folks that maybe are in, in, uh, in the working world and are working through this and they find out that they've been exposed to somebody, what, what precaution should they take and should they get tested right away? How does that, how does that work? So if they've been exposed, it's a little late to take precautions. Um, I, I think when you look at an exposure, you're really saying how exposed were you? So how, what kind of contact time with you, did you have with somebody who may uh, be positive for COVID? Uh, were you wearing any kind of mask or um, you know, did you have gloves on? Did you have any kind of protection? So those are the things that would tell you how you should respond. So if you were exposed, and let's say you were exposed and you didn't have any protection, you were with them for a long period of time in a close environment without wearing a mask, then we would recommend that you quarantine yourself for 14 days to make sure that you did not um, contract the disease. If you were wearing a mask and if you were not up close, if you had social distancing, then then your risk is much less and um, and then the quarantining is not needed unless you start developing symptoms. So if, if somebody does quarantine for 14 days, let's say it's a family member they were exposed to that's tested positive and they quarantine for 14 days, is it all right for them to return to work after 14 days or should they really be tested? No, it is okay as long as they haven't developed any symptomatology. Okay. And, and if somebody has, to, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, hammering on this workplace thing in particular. So if somebody has tested positive for COVID and they're feeling fine and it's been a couple weeks, when is it okay to return to work? Uh, well, the, what they, we say and what, what has been recommended is once you have tested positive, 14 days after you have um, been exposed, if you, let's say you never got symptoms, because some people never get symptoms, 14 days after you're exposed, then it's okay for you to come back to work. If you did get symptoms, then we, it's, if you're 10 days post any symptoms and at least three days fever-free. Okay. So, without taking sense. any medication. Okay. Uh, you, so the minimum is really the, the 10 days post any symptoms. So, you know, it, it should always add up to at least 14 days that you've been out. Okay. And then some people ask, if I have a lingering cough after 14 days, am I still able to go back to work? And the answer is yes, because you may have a lingering cough for a long period of time. That's uh, what I've been hearing a lot. Um, you've indicated that you started to, uh, in the last few weeks, relax some of your visitors visiting policies and allowing care partners. We talked about that last week. Um, and you said that you might experiment in the future with, with more easing of those visitors' policies. Um, is that still ongoing, and how is it going? 
You know, this is so important to patients who are in the hospital. And so the faster we can have um, people be able to have visitors, the better off everybody's going to be. Um, We did do a trial with our surgical patients, and that trial went very, very well. So the trial was any surgical patient could have a uh, care partner, whether they were inpatient or an outpatient, who was here in the facility um, to be able to be with the patient and help with um, understanding what was going on in their treatment. We are starting, because of how well that trial went, um, to open up visiting one visitor only, but one care partner to all patients that are inpatients that are not COVID positive or being ruled out for COVID. So, and the reason for that is because those COVID positives are being ruled out for COVID would um, require a lot of PPE usage by the family members and would be more exposure to that, that person. So we are still limiting visitors on those patients, but everybody else um, can have one care partner uh, during their hospital stay. And do they have some restrictions as to where they can go? Other, you know, they can't necessarily roam the floor, right? Well, we are allowing them to go down to the cafeteria or to the Starbucks because we figure it's just too hard to police not doing that and it's too hard to just stay in the room. We do ask that people use the bathroom in the patient's room instead of um, the public bathrooms. But everything else, as long as they're wearing their mask, which they would have to, they're screened before they come into the building so we know that they're not having symptoms. We ask them questions and also do their temperature. So, yes, they're able to move around. We've talked a lot in the last couple of months about the financial implications on your hospital and other hospitals as a result of the COVID pandemic. Just wondering how that's looking now. Is that is that hole getting deeper and deeper? And is it something that you anticipate being able to get out of in the near future? Or is it going to be a long-term problem? Well, first of all, I think it's, it's um, hard to predict the future. Uh, the hole is is not getting as deep as fast as we thought it was going to be, but there's a couple of reasons for that. So um, I'll try to explain. First of all, hospitals have very small margins anyway, particularly non-for-profit hospitals. Uh, If we have a 2 to 3% profit margin, we're very lucky. Being non-for-profit, that money goes back into investing in capital, keeping, you know, the newest in technology, um, you know, everything we need to keep the hospital going and be current in uh, providing care. So with this fiscal year, and we're on a June to uh, July uh, fiscal year, we uh, were doing excellent by the time, you know, when COVID hit. We were beating our budget um, and really in a good financial place. Uh, April, the end of March and April, really impacted us negatively, and I talked a lot about that. May, where we did um, finally do some things to to change the amount of spend we were having. So the initial reason why our finances went down was, was several reasons. One was that we stopped all elective procedures, all elective surgical and um, interventional procedures. We closed outpatient offices. We closed out 
outpatient um, labs and radiology, um, and everybody really stayed home, so we didn't have revenue. So revenue was a big hit, as well as we were spending a lot more money on um, personal protective equipment, on cleaning supplies, on personnel. We had personnel doing things that we never would have had personnel doing, so uh, being at the front door, uh, monitoring people, cleaning things, um, monitoring employees. So there was hundreds of extra people doing things that they never would have done. Also, uh, more people on the floors taking care of patients because it took a lot more staff to take care of patients, particularly having to put on and off all the PPE and all the extra um, places we had open ICU beds. So what we um, did was we, we had a large expense go out, no revenue, very little revenue coming in, and we kept all of our employees whole financially in March and April. In May, what happened is um, middle of May, we started being able to uh, have some of the elective procedures start up again, and we did ask employees to use their, their paid time off, which helped us. And with that, we, we had predicted that we would um, continue to have a large deficit, but um, instead we, and we also received both in April $25 million as a system and in May another $25 million in, um, in CARES Act money. We do not know if we're going to have to pay that money back, but um, at this point we did get $50 million total in CARES Act money, which helped us to um, mitigate all of our losses, as well as we did get a large donation um, through our foundation, which was many millions of dollars that did help us as well. And even with all of that, we um, year-to-date are... Um, Operating at an eight million as a system over over eight million dollar loss, so you can imagine if we hadn't done all the things we did, where we would be financially. I now, assume that fifty million is is uh, for the whole system, not just for Elmhurst. Yes, the fifty million is for the whole system, but half of that goes to Elmhurst. So if you're talking about Elmhurst alone, uh, we would that whole the foundation money is all part of Elmhurst, as well as 25 million of that 50 million would go to Elmhurst. So you know we at Elmhurst year to date are um, 23 million positive, but as a system we're 8.4 million behind. Um, but we, if we hadn't gotten that foundation money, uh, we would be significantly different than that. Now, May was good for us, better than we thought. The uh, surgicals picked up faster than we thought they would pick up. We were able to um, change how many staff we were using, and, um, and we got better control of how we provide care, and people are coming back. So we're hoping June will be better as well. So it's going to take a long time to make up all this money, and if we have to pay back any of that $50 million, it's going to impact us. But we are on moving forward in a, in a more, much more positive way. And, and then, again, if we end up having another outbreak in the fall, then that could change all this as well. It sounds like the federal government sent the money, and then they'll figure out the rules later, huh? Yeah, that's the way it goes. <laughs> um, in terms of your patients uh, that have the uh, ability maybe to get some um, initial diagnoses via video and e-visits, are, are people using that, and are they comfortable with it, the patients at least? From what I hear, 
patients are using it and physicians are getting more comfortable themselves because remember physicians weren't used to doing video visits either so we will be doing video visits going forward um, one of the things is that you know many insurance companies and the government didn't want to pay for video visits but all of a sudden with this epidemic they decided that they would pay for video visits. Now we're hoping they don't change that after all this and stop paying for them again. Uh, but but as long as they're going to be paid for, we'll continue to do video visits and have patients be able to come back into the office. So you will have a choice of what would work for you. And sometimes patients would need to come in just for the initial uh, look at what's going on, but any follow-ups could be done by video, which is a lot more convenient for people. It'll be interesting to see going forward if... Uh if there are certain demographics that enjoy those video visits, you know, millennials, et cetera, um, versus uh, some folks uh, that are a little older that may not as much once the, you know, pandemic's gone. But I, I think this certainly could change healthcare in the long term, right? That's what we're expecting. We're, and you know, it's, it's, it's um, stereotypical to say it's the millennials versus the older people because there's some older people that like video visits and there are some millennials that want to see people in person. But in the majority of them, yes, they're just uh, millennials are just more comfortable with technology because they've lived with it all their lives. But we're expecting that healthcare is going to look very different as we move forward. I've uh, turned on the television to some national news programs and seen some TV doctors that are well known say that most of these um, medical offices, dentist offices, even hair salons and, and the like are pretty safe in and of themselves. The one area you may want to be a little careful in is the waiting areas of those places. So I would ask you, what are you doing at uh, Elmhurst Hospital to uh, make the waiting areas safer for patients? So... We really believe in safety being our number one priority. And so our waiting areas, we have changed. So we have some social distancing practices going on in terms of the way we've set up the, the chairs um, and how many people we'll have in a waiting room at any one time. And so we're, we are trying to divide out in-person visit with several video visits in between so not as many people are in the offices at the same time so they're spread out um, we screen all visitors and patients before they even enter the building and um, you know we have a lot of hand gel around and we're promoting hand hygiene at the entrances and then we have our staff cleaning and disinfecting every chair after somebody um, utilizes a chair or anything that they're touching you know and we keep trying to educate the community our, and our staff and anybody who's on site with social distancing and universal masking. Um, just want to ask you for an update I haven't asked you in a, in a while on PPE supplies how's it going uh, anything else the community can give? We've talked about blood. Uh, anything that the hospital's in need of that we can help with? So we've been pretty stable with our PPE supply. Um, we are trying to aggressively build up a a, um, a large supply of PPE because we are concerned about the fall and we don't want to be uh, caught short um, in the fall because everybody will need more uh, supply as fall comes. Again, blood continues to be a great thing for people to donate, um, especially those people who have been positive with COVID so that we can get therapeutic uh, plasma so that we can use that for patients and have a supply built up. 
um, because we have definitely seen a, um, a major difference in patients who receive the therapeutic plasma. So anybody who's had COVID and wants to donate their blood, that would be excellent. Okay. Um, one, one last question that's kind of on the personal side for me. Uh, I wear glasses and I have a hard time keeping my glasses from fogging up. And I'm sure there are a lot of medical professionals that wear glasses and are used to wearing masks. Are there any tricks to keep your glasses from fogging up? Well, supposedly there are a lot of tricks, but I talked to Dr. Sullivan who, you know, had to wear, wear um, glasses while he was in the cath lab and wear a mask at the same time. So he said the number one trick that he knows is to make sure your mask is up on your nose and that your glasses are over your mask, or you can put a wire through your uh, mask that goes around the nose to keep it clamped in place and then put your glasses over it, and that stops the air from getting up and fogging up your glasses. And then Lou said that she has um, uh, Googled on YouTube many videos that tell you little tricks on how to keep your glasses from fogging. I've not looked at them because I do what Dr. Sullivan told me to do, and I put the, my mask up high and put my glasses on the outside of the mask. Um, and I find, and when I put it a little bit lower, not so close to my face, so that if any air comes up, it's not directly going onto the glasses. I find myself walking through the grocery stores holding my glasses in my hand. And then when I get close <laughs> to something, I put them back on because I'm having so much trouble. So that that's all good advice. I'm going to try some of that, and I uh, I hope it helps. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us here this afternoon. I hope that uh, your staff continues to uh, have a great attitude because it's got to be hard with what everybody's been going through over there. And uh, I know their leader is, has a positive attitude, and that uh, really reflects on them. Well, thank you so much, and I will tell you again, the staff here are exceptional, both the physicians, the nursing, and everybody else who works in this hospital. People did jobs they never thought they would do, and they did it willingly and excitedly trying to learn no matter how afraid they were about their own health they wanted to make sure our community's health was taken care of and they wanted to be here for each other and i that attitude has not changed um just a great group of people and that's why we are straight a's with leapfrog it is because we have people who every single little detail is important and again keeping the community informed is so important so i thank you for your willingness to do this each week because I know, I've heard a lot of feedback from people that they love these um, podcasts you've done, not just the one with me, but the ones you've done with many other people in the community that keep them informed. So thank you. And thank you and thank your staff uh, for us. And uh, I hope to talk again next week. Thank you so much. Take care. This is Aaron Jason, Business Development Coordinator for the City of Elmhurst. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 Census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we are Steve Waddington and the Retro Rocket All-Star. And when we're not rocking in Southern California, we listen to the E-Town Now it's time for another edition of Clever Ken the Hardware Man, featuring Ken Ebel of Ebel's Haste Hardware at 1028 South York, 
in Elmhurst. Mort Molitor from South Elmhurst writes, Them stinky black and white striped squirrels dig in my yard every night. I don't know why them varmints like my grass more than the bumpuses next door. Their lawn looks like a gourmet vegan smorgasbord compared to mine. How do I keep them buggers from digging for Chinese takeout in my yard? All right, Mort, it seems like you have a grub problem in your yard. They're pretty easy to get rid of. You're going to use something like a grub X, and you're going to apply that to your yard, and they will be gone for the duration of the season. And you'll never smell crab ragoons again. I'm Clever Ken, the hardware man, helping you help yourself. The E-Town Lowdown, brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra, featuring the biggest bass drum in the world. At nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.